I want to invite you to open up your Bibles, the Bibles that you brought with you, or the Bible that's there in the pew, or the Bible on your phone through the YouVersion Bible app to the book of Job. I did say Job, page 350 in your Bible. We just started this book that revolves around one of the most universal experiences and questions about that experience, suffering. And as you're turning to Job, one of the things I'd like to point out today is that for someone who believes in God, the question of why, why in the face of suffering, why in the midst of the problem of pain can be even more acute than it is for a non-believer. Because for the believer, why is not a rhetorical question shouted out to an indifferent and silent cosmos? The challenge for the believer is that both the question and the problem are personal. As believers, we aren't trying to reconcile what has happened when we suffer with some concept of chance or fate. No, our difficulty comes in trying to reconcile what we believe about God with what we are experiencing in our lives. If we believe in a good and loving God, if we believe this God is sovereign, in control, and with authority over all creation, what are we to make of suffering when it comes into our lives? Especially if the pain is inarguably not of our own making. How are we to read to resolve the tension between our faith in God and the reality of our lives under God? For the believer, the issue is not just that suffering and pain hurt, but that our Creator, our Father, is responsible for the hurting, whether by causing or allowing it to happen. And it's this conundrum that the book of Job wrestles with. Last week, we were introduced to Job, a blameless and righteous man, not a perfect person, but not guilty of any sin when all hell breaks loose in his life. God believes in Job, that Job serves him for nothing. God trusts Job is in relationship with him, not because of the benefits and the blessings, but because Job seeks God for God's self, knowing and relating to the Lord's person and character. And it's out of this belief and trust, the Lord allows the Satan, the adversary, to afflict Job, stripping him of his property, his wealth, his children, and eventually his health. Surprisingly to us, but not to God, Job, though devastated, does not turn his back on the Lord. Instead, he worships. He blesses the name of the Lord, even when his own wife doesn't deny his innocence, but chides the integrity of his faith. Job does not curse God. He holds on to the Lord. He remains committed to the Lord whether their relationship brings good or bad in his life. That's where, as we saw last week, Job begins. But as time passes and three friends emerge, the real challenge is about to begin. Before we go there, before we begin, I'd like to clarify how I read the book of Job, as there were many questions after last week. I mentioned last week that we find this book, and I think this is important, in the wisdom section of the library rather than the historical accounts. And I believe, therefore, there's a good reason to take this story as a parable rather than as an accounting of true events, i.e., this actually happened. 
Again, if you even look how the story is told, once there was a man named Job, the very fact that everything that happens happens all in one day. And as a little sidebar, the conversation that we hear in heaven, anyone want to tell me who was there to take notes? Job has the worst day ever. Pastor John, when he instituted communion in the second service, made a reference to talking to one of the ushers and saying, how are you doing? He goes, well, my day's better than Job's. <laughs> and your laughter, this is the point. Job, in fact, has the worst day ever. That's the point. The point of creating this story. Because if he didn't have the worst day ever, then we'd always go, well, I know somebody who had it worse. Right? No, it's just like, this is it. This is the worst day ever. And we're called to enter into it, not wrestling with, did this actually happen? But the reality of, okay, what if the worst thing ever happens? How do we engage that? What comes out of that? What questions? And here's the thing, if you're still caught in the, on the fence on this, either way, historical or fiction, if you want to think this is history, or whether you want to think this story is a parable, is fiction, the point of the story doesn't change. There is divine truth revealed in this story either way both in expressing the reality of our pain and the questions born of our suffering, as well as the perspective and insight we glean from our relationship with God through this story. So today, we're going to wade through the back-and-forth conversation between Job and his friends that constitutes the middle chapters of this book, a dialogue that wrestles with the why of suffering and attempts to offer some answers as we enter into that, let me set the stage for you before we read a little bit. It's been days, weeks perhaps, months maybe, after this tragic loss when three friends of Job, Eliphaz, Bilidad, and Zophar, come together to console him. As they arrive, we're told at the end of chapter 2, still some distance away, they see a ghost-like figure, shaven, ashen, and covered with festering sores from head to foot. Drawing closer, they begin to weep because this broken and disfigured man is Job, but looks nothing like the friend they once knew. Tearing their robes and sprinkling dust on themselves as an act of solidarity in mourning, they sit down beside Job and at first say nothing. For seven days... They sit together in stillness until eventually Job breaks the silence. And that's what we're going to hear from today in Job chapter 3. Hear the word of the Lord. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, may the day of my birth perish and the night that said, a boy is conceived. That day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm it. That night, may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, nor be entered into any of the months. May that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day. Those who are ready to rouse Leviathan. May its morning stars become dark. May it wait for daylight in vain and not see the first rays of dawn. For it did not shut the doors of the womb on me to hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? For now I would be lying down in peace. I would be asleep and at rest. 
with kings and rulers of the earth who built for themselves palaces now lying in ruins, with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Oh, why was I not hidden away in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day? There the wicked cease from turmoil, and there the weary are at rest. Captives also enjoy their ease. They no longer hear the slave drivers shout. The small and the great are there, and the slaves are freed from their owners. Why is light given to those in misery, life to the bitter of soul, to those who long for death that does not come, those who search for it more than hidden treasure, who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave? Why? Is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For sighing has become my daily food. My groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I read that whole chapter because I think... It's important that we really sit and enter into the fullness of what Job expresses. And as you see, if you were with us last week, the patience of Job gives way to the anguish of Job. He begins to pour out his heart and mind. Even though he skipped the first stage, never denying what had happened, Job now enters what we call the second stage of grief, anger. For a whole chapter, you heard it, Job opens his mouth and curses does not curse God, he curses the day of his birth. To bring life, God long ago said, let there be light, and Job now cries, let there be darkness. Job asks for his life to disappear from existence. It's as if he wants it as if he were never born. Life, you see, has moved on, but Job does not, he cannot, and so Job longs for death. Better to be dead than to go on living like this. Death is preferable to Job because at least his suffering would be over. Death would be rest, freedom from the pain and burden he bears. But the death blow isn't coming. And interestingly, Job entertains no idea of taking his own life. His misery prolonged. You heard Job confess there at the end, this is what he feared all along. That even in the good days, Job wondered whether it was all too good to be true. There were shadows of doubt even then of it all being taken away, of his good run coming to an end, and now it has. His bubble has been burst. With no peace or rest to be found, Job shouts to the heavens. He laments and rages, not just calling to God, but eventually, as we progress, calling out God. And it's so important we read this whole chapter, and it's so important we even just stop here because I think one of the most profound things about Job, even though I know many of us struggle reading it, is Job, especially here, gives voice to all who have suffered without cause and without understanding. My friends, pain for which we cannot trace the source is the most agonizing and devastating pain of all. If you've ever been there, if we know what this feels like, you read this chapter and you understand where Job is coming from. But unfortunately, as we continue today, Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bilidad, and Zophar, do not understand. They've listened to Job up to this point, 
But as we turn to chapter 4, they can no longer remain silent. Now they've each got something to say. And you may want to keep those Bibles open. I'll make little references here and there because we're covering all the way to chapter 31. Eliphaz speaks first, most likely indicating he's the eldest of the three. Eliphaz's name means, my God is pure, and throughout his speeches to Job, he is singularly focused on defending the purity of God. His answer to the why of Job's suffering is encapsulated in chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. You can look at them or I'm going to read them to you. Eliphaz says, consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. Eliphaz's counsel, as you heard, is first based on his experience. He's never seen someone suffer who was innocent. In his way of seeing things, you reap what you sow in life. And if you go forward in chapter 12, he adds to his experience, to have, he claims to have had a special revelation, a vision, what we would call a word from the Lord that seals the deal for him. God is righteous, Eliphaz says. We are not. God doesn't make mistakes. No one is pure. Therefore, all suffering is the result of sin. The Lord is trying to teach you something, Job, to get your attention, to wake you up. Stop whining and learn the lesson here. Bilidad is up next. He backs up Eliphaz's argument by appealing to, get ready for it, tradition. Chapter 8, verses 8 through 10. Bilidad says, Ask the former generation and find out what their ancestors learned. For we were born only yesterday and know nothing. And our days on earth are but a shadow. Will they not instruct you and tell you? Will they not bring forth words from their understanding? Bilidad says, God is just. The Lord does not allow the blameless to suffer. Everyone knows this. People get what they deserve. Isn't that what your mom and dad taught you? To underscore this point of view, Bilidad pushes the logic of his argument further. He assures Job this isn't just about him. Since your children are dead, Job, they must have sinned too. Death is the price they paid for their sins. And if you don't stop giving God a piece of your mind and instead surrender your heart to him, again, fess up and come clean with the Lord, you'll end up dead too. That's two. Here's three. Zophar chimes in in chapter 11. And by the time he starts talking, he is indignant about Job's claims of innocence. In chapter 11, he says, You say to God, my beliefs are flawless, and I am pure in your sight. Oh, how I wish God would speak, that he would open his lips against you. Know this. God has even forgotten some of your sin. In other words, Zophar says, how can you claim to be innocent? No one is righteous, not one. You are a sinner like the rest of us. And as sinners, we all deserve to suffer. In fact, you ought to be counting your blessings, Job. Because it could have been worse. Actually, you probably deserve a whole lot worse. Brief sampling, this is the gist of it. One thing you might notice is while each of them share something distinctive, ultimately all three of Job's friends are arguing the same point. And in case you missed it, here's what they're arguing. God is good. 
Therefore, God cannot be unjust. Therefore, God, Job must be in the wrong. Job must have done something wrong that needed correction. And if Job wants to be restored to his former glory, he needs to confess his sin. He needs to repent and get his life straight. And if you go through this protracted dialogue, as each of Job's friends take turns telling Job what his problem is, Job defends himself and counters their arguments. He asserts his innocence and continues to question God, to ask God, why? Job and his friends go around this circle once, twice, even a third time. And one of the things you notice if you read all of it is as the conversation proceeds, things get heated, frustrating, and even a bit cruel. By the second wave of lectures, Job's friends start to charge Job with being guilty of all kinds of specific sins, of not earning his wealth ethically. Oh yeah, that's what it was. Or being prideful in his relationships. That's what it is. Together, they end up trying to bully Job into signing a false confession. And if you read through this, through all of this, Job just wants his so-called friends to shut up. <laughs> to be quiet. He tells them they are miserable comforters. Worthless physicians. Job laments their counsel is like salt in the wound of his sufferings. Listen to this from chapter 19. Job says, have pity on me, my friends. Have pity, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? With one final long outburst, insisting he's done nothing wrong, nothing to deserve his suffering, Job reduces his company back to silence. He's not convinced them that he's innocent. To them, Job is just stubbornly clinging to an untenable position. Job justifies himself rather than God. And that is 31, eh, 29 chapters. <laughs> Worth reading through if you really want to get into the nitty gritty, but we're going to stop here because that in and of itself gives us plenty to chew on. And this morning, from what I've set up for you, from what I've taken you through in this part of the story, there are two crucial insights for us to take away. Here's the first. When it comes to those who are suffering, we need to reflect on the value of the ministry of presence over and against trying to have all the answers. I'm going to repeat that one more time. When it comes to those who are suffering, we need to reflect on the value of the ministry of presence over and against trying to have all the answers. Or to put this another way, when someone is really hurting, they don't need you to say the right thing. They just need you to be there for them. This story pulls you in. I told you that last week. It's not going to stop. We read this, and I've given you a sampling, but especially if you go through each chapter, I mean, if you wade through it, you have to confront the question, what would you say to Job? What would you say to Job? What would we say after his heart-ridden lament in chapter 3? How do we react when someone is suffering like Job? and unleashes the flood of his or her grief and despair. Maybe they've received some devastating news. Maybe they're still reeling from an acute loss or wound. What do we say? How do we react? Do we offer answers like, it's all for the best? It's part of God's plan. 
God never sends people more than they can handle. These are all things that in my lifetime I've heard said to me, let alone to others. Do we actually believe these answers are helpful? Would these answers be helpful to us if the situation was reversed? Body of Christ, stop talking. (laughs) Stop throwing out platitudes. Because here's the thing. Why do we so quickly perceive we know the answer to another person's suffering when we often don't know the reason for our own pain? As Jesus once said, physician, heal yourself. Whenever we engage everyone else who suffers, we're like Job's friends. We're coming from a limited perspective. We don't know everything that's going on. Ah, but wait a second. The interesting thing about this story is, in fact, that you and I, we come from a privileged position. We have two advantages that Job and his friends did not. In watching Job go through all this, thinking again of the setup of this story, we know how this all started. We have the heavenly prologue, right? And we know how it will end up. We don't have that kind of perspective and knowledge in any other situation like this. But here's the thing, and again, I think it's the point. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter even when we know for sure what's going on. Even if we were in this story and tried to share this with Job, can you imagine it? It wouldn't matter. It never does. Because Job is in the middle of it all. He can only see what he can see. We can't make him see what he can't see. We can't rush him ahead to what what will be without him going through where he is right now. My friends, to truly come alongside someone who is hurting, we have to meet that person where he or she is. And that means taking our cues from him or her, not from our experience, not from our perspective, not from our so-called knowledge. Job's friends had the right idea from the start. Go back to chapter 2, right? When they first came to Job, we're told they sat with him for seven days and seven nights. And no one said a word to him. Pay attention to this at the end of chapter 2. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Sometimes there's nothing to say. Sometimes there are no words. Being present Dropping everything else you were doing to sit, to stand by, to just let the other person know by being there that you are with them, that you are for them, that they are not alone is the greatest, most impactful response we can offer. But you heard it. Job's friends could take his silence, but not his lament. They could take his silence, but not his lament. When Job started cursing, when Job began questioning, when Job cried out in frustration to God, they couldn't take it. They needed to calm Job down. They needed to correct his thinking. But they weren't protecting God. They were protecting themselves. Anyone, 
Anyone who has spent time with a suffering friend knows how hard it is to remain present without trying to give answers. It's excruciating to suffer silently with a friend who must rebuild his or her life piece by piece without any certainty about the outcome. Sometimes sitting in the suffering of others forces us to face our own pain. Sometimes the answers, the reasons we give to others to help them, to get them back to normal, are so we don't have to confront our own doubts and struggles. The cracks in our neat and tidy way of perceiving the universe. But my friends, being present means listening. Staying and standing by even when the other person's grief, their anger, their hurt may spill over onto us. Whether they take it out on us or whether they say things that unsettle and challenge how we see things. In other words, being present means giving permission, allowing space for someone to hurt. Allowing space for someone to hurt. You know, the big question here, and it's important for us to hear it as comforters, but it's even more important for us to hear if we're suffering, is this. Is it okay for Job to feel like he does in this book? Is there a place, in other words, in the Christian life for the kind of doubt, for the kind of darkness, for the kind of dismay Job expresses specifically in chapter 3, but certainly elsewhere? And my friends, the answer, not just from the book of Job, but from the book of Psalms and Lamentations and the whole of the Bible is yes. Yes. Disappointment. Disillusionment. And discouragement are God-created emotions. Despair and depression are therefore normal human experiences after times of loss, and they are not contradictory to our faith. You need to hear that if you've been told otherwise. They are not contradictory to our faith. Job reflects powerfully for us, even the godly can be depressed. Job's questions emanate from a deep desire to give expression to the depth of pain he is feeling. Job is so anguished, he feels he must tell someone, and frankly, who better to tell than God? And as we'll see in the following chapters as we go forward, God does not rebuke Job for expressing his doubts or even venting his anger. Beloved, and some of you need to hear this this morning, the Lord does not hold it against us if in our suffering we vent our feelings to him. We cry to him if we even shout at him if necessary, unloading the emotional pain onto him and if the Lord doesn't hold it against us, if the Lord can take it, why can't we? Why can't we give that permission? Why can't we afford that space to each other when we are hurting? Being present for someone who is suffering means allowing that person to articulate, to wrestle, to process their pain. Anguish needs to be expressed in words and externalized. Medical science even validates how vital it is when someone undergoes pain not to bottle up or stuff their feelings. And you need to hear this because many of us have been taught the proper way is to have a stip up for lip, to get over it and move on. Never let them see you cry. Never break down. And the word of the Lord says, hooey. Medical science says, 
ridiculous. Grief and sadness that are internalized, that get pushed down into the subconscious, will only show itself later. And we're seeing this in our world today. It shows itself through the debilitating effects of stress. Do you know that's the number one thing killing people today? Stress. It shows itself through the debilitating form effects of stress or long-term depression. There is nothing wrong with short-term depression, but long-term depression is a concern. Long-term depression is something that needs to be dealt with. My friends, we show support to those we love by allowing them to tell their stories, to give expression to their pain, and being willing to carry their emotions with them. And that's the hard part, to carry it with them. And this isn't just good psychology. It's the very counsel of Scripture I could quote lots of scriptures, but I'll give you just one. Paul instructs us in Romans 12, chapter, chapter 12, verse 15. Paul writes, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. I want to be clear. Job's three friends do care about him. There's no doubt about that. When they hear about what has happened to him, don't overlook the fact that they take the time to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. They have good intentions, but their good intentions become eclipsed by their vigilance for having the right answers. And that leads us to our second and final observation at this point in the story. The first was to understand the greater value of the ministry of presence. But the second observation is that sometimes we can become so convinced we're right, we blind ourselves to seeing how wrong we are and learning what is true. I mean, don't miss this. Job's friends have correct premises. God is all-powerful, and God is good. But from a limited point of view, even though they have correct premises, they jump to a wrong conclusion. They have no direct evidence of Job's sin, nor those of his children. And yet, reasoning from the suffering that Job is experiencing, they presume to argue his misfortune and pain are deserved. God is just. Suffering only comes on those who act badly and do wrong. Therefore, suffering is a just punishment, a retribution, a payback for sin. Ergo, Job is getting what he deserves. However, as I've already mentioned, based upon our viewpoint in how this story is told, we know without question, and again, this is the point, they are 100% wrong. 100% wrong. We know for certain. We were set up with this. We know the cause of Job's suffering is not his sin. Now, the interesting thing is, even though we know all of this, we cannot help, I think, but hear ourselves in the voices of Job's friends. And what I mean is, it's time to be honest, how often do we presume to know everything about another person's situation? How easy is it for us, you and me, to jump to conclusions when we see another person going through a bad time? Aren't we all guilty at times of offering unsolicited advice to others, that kind of ring of condemnation. I can think of two quick examples for you. And I'm entering, leaving this stage, but it was a journey going through it. Parenting children. 
When children misbehave, we all know why they misbehave, right? It's the parents. They screwed up. Not doing it right. If they just trained up a child in the way it should go, they wouldn't have these problems. Those parents, can you believe them, what they must be doing at home? Man, they just have no sense at all about how to raise kids. Because my kids are perfect. <laughs> Never had any problems. You know why that is, right? Because I'm awesome. Because I'm brilliant. You've said it. You know you thought it. Or you've been on the other side where you've been condemned this way. And yet we all know, don't we? Yeah, there are situations, again, where people cause their own suffering, but we all know situations where parents did the best they could. They did everything that we might say is right. And yet their children still struggled, suffered. And yet we so quickly jump to conclusions. We think we know everything. I'll give you a second example, and this one hits a little bit closer to home because it's here. One of the central ministries of this church, in my opinion, is the Good News Ministry. And I'll tell you why the Good News Ministry, which is a ministry every Sunday, and actually it's not just Sunday. Sunday's the prime time where we minister to the homeless, the working poor, and those who are, on, who are struggling. It's a central ministry, and yet we're struggling right now as a community to fully embrace that ministry. I can't tell you how many people tell me, you know, I'm just not really called to serve the homeless or the less fortunate. Hate to tell you, but if you're not called, then you're not going where Jesus is. Because Jesus says he's with the least of these. And when I have those conversations, I push past, and you know what inevitably has come up pretty much all the time in some form or another? Well, I don't serve with those people because they're just getting what they deserve. Because they should get a job. Because they should be behave better. They should clean themselves up. They're causing their own problems. You know what? I'm tired. I'm, this isn't helping them. This is enabling them. And I don't want to be supportive of that because these people just need to get up off their butts and get, get, a, get their life in order. Really? If you actually talk to someone who is homeless, working poor, you might actually find out because we think everybody's homeless. They're not homeless. They're just near the poverty level. They're struggling. You might be surprised when you hear their story. Your presumptions, our assumptions that we make suddenly, suddenly might be challenged. And even if we can point to certain things where we go, well, they're kind of a victim of their own circumstance, when you really hear someone else's story, you realize it's not that simplistic. It's much more complex. And again, back to protecting ourselves, I think at times we stay away from the homeless, we stay away from the working poor, we stay away from those who are struggling, because the truth is, we don't want to look at that because we don't want to think that we could be there. And so we tell ourselves, well, I'll never be there because I do it right. I, I make the most of my life. I'm responsible for myself. And the reality is many people who are struggling, many people, it's not because of anything they did. My friends, part of the reason we get to overhear the arguments of Eliphaz, Bilidad, and Zophar is so that we can stop repeating not only their bad answers, but also so that we can stop repeating their incorrect answers. Together, their answer to the why of suffering 
understand this, is what's called retribution theology. You could take their position to Job. It's called retribution theology. You probably have never heard of that before, so let me give you its more familiar name. They're giving you the prosperity or the health and wealth gospel. Retribution theology is the conviction if you do good things, you will receive physical and tangible blessings. On the other hand, if you do bad things, you will receive physical punishment, sickness, poverty, etc. And this kind of thinking isn't just something others put on us, like Job's friends. A lot of times, many of us are quite ready to accuse ourselves based on this theology, right? Anyone who has tasted failure has maybe pondered, what have I done to deserve this? What have I done to deserve this? Retribution theology the prosperity gospel, whatever you want to call it, is an attempt to justify the logic of God's interaction with the world, especially a world marked by suffering. However, and this is why we avoid this book, what Job blows up, and trust me, you want him to blow it up. You want this book to blow this up. What Job makes clear is threads of biblical truth do not equal a divine law of cause and effect. Hear this. This is so important. While the Bible does assert following God's ways will be good for you, righteous living has its rewards eternally, and disobeying his commands will bring trouble for you. Bad behavior leads to painful consequences eventually. This general principle is never expressed as a mathematical formula here and now. In other words, while the righteous will be vindicated and the wicked will be held accountable, that doesn't mean in this life the ones who prosper are always righteous and those who suffer have always done something wrong. Hear that, church? The gospel of Jesus Christ has no doctrine of karma. The gospel of Jesus Christ has no doctrine of karma. God has not built a reflex action into the universe to automatically pay someone back for sin or to automatically rain down prosperity for good behavior. God is not a slot machine. Jesus himself makes it clear. Our present suffering in this life is not necessarily caused by what we did in the past, something we brought on ourselves, Jesus goes further and says it's not even necessarily caused by someone else's sin in your family. Bad things happen regardless of how well we behave and good things happen regardless of how we behave because we live in a universe broken by humanity's rebellion against God. What I'm trying to say, and I know I'm getting a little heady, is while there is a moral order to the universe, there is a moral order to the universe, we cannot manage God through our sense of morality. Beware. Beware of any theology that is neat and tidy with no loose ends. Beware. More than likely, it is trying to fit God into a formula rather than letting God be God. Because whenever we do that, try to fit God into a formula, into our theology, whenever we do that, bind God to our way of thinking and being, we end up binding ourselves, foreclosing on any possibility of having our perspective broadened by the revelation of divine truth. 
me break this down. Consider this. If you and I today ascribe a view that God is bound to you reap what you sow, if it's that simple, if that's how it works, if that's divine justice, then hear me loud and clear. If that's how it is, then there is no such thing. There is no possibility of grace. There is no such thing. There is no possibility of grace. Because you see, grace is what breaks the equation of retribution theology. Grace is what breaks the flawed idea of the prosperity gospel. Because grace, remember, is getting what we don't deserve, what we haven't earned, what we can't merit, what isn't ours to claim. Don't miss this. Job's friends, and it's really shocking, have no sense of grace. They are so fixated on the rightness of their point of view, they have no room for grace. Because they cannot even consider the possibility of being wrong, they don't even have the slightest awareness that such a beautiful divine reality could exist. Therefore, as we hear, they have no grace to give to Job, but even more importantly, they have no grace to receive for themselves. My friends, grace, and that is what brings us together, that is the cornerstone of our faith, Grace will not be domesticated by our moralistic theology. But we deny ourselves freedom and hope when we are more concerned with being right than seeking, receiving, and engaging the truth of God's grace. So we come to the end of chapter 31. And the picture we're left with at that point in the story is despite what the majority says, however impeccable the orthodoxy of his friends, despite whatever special revelations they've received, Job senses this truth, the possibility of grace, and he continues to sit in the crucible of faith. Probably one of the most famous passages of Job is in chapter 19, when Job, however dimly, glimpses the possibility of grace when he says, I know that my Redeemer lives that in the end he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. Job believes in his redemption that God will clear his name. Through, the, futi through with the, the futility of theoretical arguments, Job longs for a less philosophical or theological answer, and he longs more for an encounter, for the presence of the living God. And though his struggle and waiting are not over yet, we've still got some chapters to go. In the end, Job will not be disappointed. Beloved, sometimes words fail. Sometimes words fail. When suffering comes and we don't know what to say, we can't find the words, or when Sometimes the pain gets so real and the suffering of another person hits us too close to home and we just start talking to fill the space and our words, rather than heal, just plain hurt and deepen the wound of another person. 
The good news is when words fail, when we run out of things to say, or when everything we speak is wrong, the word of God becomes flesh. The word of God becomes flesh and dwells with us in our darkness and gives us, teaches us a new language, the vocabulary of grace. We don't always reap what we sow. We don't always get what we deserve. Praise God, but there is redemption. There is always the promise of resurrection. There is always the truth spoken through the unconditional, sacrificial, and selfless love of Christ that God is with us, that God is for us, even when everything else even when everyone else seems to be against us. Amen.